Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today to worship our great God and Savior. I don't know if you know this, but there's an election coming up this week. <laughs> Just heard about it yesterday. Um, I'd encourage you to vote for whoever you believe will contribute uh, to goodness, justice, and human flourishing. We're not going to talk about the election today, though. We're going to talk about the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, just as a lead-in, the book of Judges tells us there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book of Samuel shows us how there came to be a king in Israel, but that everyone kept doing what was right in his own eyes. Uh, most of 1 Samuel and the first half of 2 Samuel reveal why Saul was rejected as king and how David came to be the good king. So the fall of Saul and the rise of David. Saul was a king who did what was right in his own eyes. David was a man after God's own heart. Right, we learn about David's ascension to the throne, the establishment of his kingdom, David's love for God, David's wisdom, the glory of David's reign as king, and the promise, the glorious promise that one day the son of David would reign on his throne forever. And that he would reign in righteousness and justice. But as we get to the end of 2 Samuel, as we come to the end of David's life, we discover that David has many of his own failings. David is not always a good and righteous king. Uh, first, we've seen across 2 Samuel that David's own personal family is often exempted from punishment and justice. Uh, then, uh, a few weeks ago, we saw David's adultery with Bathsheba, him murdering her husband. Last week, David again failed to punish his own family over rape and murder. Uh, Absalom went free after murdering David's heir. This week, Absalom starts a rebellion. And you may think that him committing murder last week was pretty rebellious, and yeah, that is pretty rebellious. Uh, but this week, he goes full out in rebellion um, and I decided that we were going to cover all of Absalom's rebellion in one shot. Um, that makes for a pretty long passage for today, about four and a half uh, chapters. Uh, so I'm going to summarize some sections for us. Uh, but it's really a single narrative, a single story, and so I felt it was best to keep it all together. Uh, the way we're going to look at today's passage is that we're going to look at it through the lens of the three main characters in the biblical narrative. Uh, first, we have Absalom, who carries out the rebellion. Uh, then we have King David, the Lord's anointed, who tries to survive a rebellion. And finally, we have the Lord God, whose providence is actually ruling over all these events, such that his sovereign purpose comes to pass. Uh, so, we're going to walk through, again, focusing on Absalom, then on David, and then finally on God. I turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, before we look at the main text, I want to remind us of a prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 265, about 20% of the way through your Bible, page 265. Uh, again, that's if you have a particular Bible, every Bible is different. Uh, 2 Samuel is the 10th book of the Bible, so if you're just counting them out, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, we're looking at 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, 
This is right after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. God sent Nathan to confront David, and God forgave David, but told him there would be consequences for his sin. So 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 through 12, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So because of David's sin, the Lord would raise up evil against David out of his own house. The sword would never leave his house. Sexual sin would be committed against his family. David's sin was secret, but the Lord is going to cause these things to happen publicly against David. And that prophecy there in chapter 12 is the context for our passage today, which begins in chapter 15. So if you would just turn page two, three over to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, and then I'll pray for us and we'll look at our text together. God, our Father, it's a joy and a privilege to be together with your people. Uh, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country, that we can worship you without fear, uh, knowing that there's no government official around, around the corner seeking to shut us down. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have to vote to help uh, choose our own government leaders. And we do pray for the election coming up in two days. We pray for wisdom for voters. Uh, we pray for peace, that whoever wins, whoever loses, that you would grant us peace as a nation, that we would be able to work through the division that is common in our country. Uh, Father, we know ultimately there will, there will never be true peace and ultimate peace until Jesus reigns. But we do ask you give us peace in the meantime, as peace can be had this side of joyful eternity. Father, I pray for the families in our church who are dealing with loss, loss because of coronavirus, loss because we live in a sinful world, loss from the death of loved ones. Father, be with us. Encourage your people. Encourage those who are hurting and sick and facing trials that maybe are private to them. And we, we ask that you would comfort and encourage. Father, we ask that you would give us boldness as a church. Help us to be faithful to share the gospel and to be looking for opportunities with our neighbors and friends and co-workers and companions. Be finding ways to share the love of Jesus with the world around us. Father, I pray for the church around the world. Uh, we, we thank you that you're at work throughout the world. I thank you for uh, our friends, the Basanis, who've been serving faithfully in Uganda. As their ministry has come to a close, we ask that you would bring them home safely uh, and that you would help us to bless them as they move into the next phase of life. And Father, we thank you for the other missionaries that we support as well uh, and just ask that you would be with them, uh, grant them faithfulness, and boldness. We ask that you would grant that they would be involved in souls being saved and in people growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning for this service, that you would bless it, 
that you would use this service to edify and to encourage your people. I ask that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that even now you would use the preaching of the gospel to open their hearts, to see their own sin and rebellion, and to see the glory of Jesus who paid for sin and paid for rebellion so that people like me could be forgiven. Father, what a joy to know that you would save a sinner like me. Father, bless this time for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first take, as it were, uh, what do we see through the narrative about Absalom? Uh, We're going to see three key moments in the text about Absalom. Absalom's rebellion, Absalom's reign, and Absalom's ruin. So Absalom's reign, rebellion, and ruin. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a dispute or cause might come to me, excuse me, in verse five, and whenever a man came near to pay him homage, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse seven, and at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, uh, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Well, this is obviously Absalom's rebellion against David. Absalom slowly leads the people away from David. He undermines David's authority. He builds up his own authority. He's charismatically building up a following. And then once Absalom has won the people over, then he takes these final steps and basically declares himself king. But what's important about this rebellion is that Absalom is not just rebelling against his king. Absalom's rebellion is against God. Now, a person may rebel against an evil government and honor God. That's not what's going on here. David is the Lord's anointed. Absalom is David's son. He he knows the Lord has chosen David as king. Absalom just doesn't care. Absalom rejects the Lord's anointed and rebels against him. And therefore, Absalom's problem is not with David. Absalom's problem is with God himself. 
And Absalom, therefore, really represents anyone who opposes the Lord and his anointed. Everyone who opposes God's kingdom. And perhaps, if we're honest, we might acknowledge in our own heart the same kind of rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. How we set up our own kingdom in our hearts. And in my kingdom, I am the king. I make the rules. No one has authority over me. Well, just know there is a true and righteous king, and you cannot rebel against him forever. So Absalom rebels against the Lord's anointed and thus against the Lord himself. Uh, Again, we're viewing this this passage first through the lens of Absalom, so we're going to just kind of coast through verses 13 and following. Uh, Just a quick summary. David hears Absalom has rebelled. He needs to make a run for it, so David flees Jerusalem. And as David flees, um, we're going to come back in a little bit and see these people that he interacts with. Um, but he has to flee the capital city. Uh, verse 24, Abiathar and Zadok, the Levite priests, they go to meet David and go with him. Uh, but he sends them back. They're going to be part of David's spy network. And then verse 31, uh, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Ahithophel is one of David's wisest counselors. And so David is very concerned that Ahithophel's uh, counsel will lead to success for Absalom, which means trouble for David. And so he prays that the Lord will make Ahithophel's counsel into foolish counsel. In verse 32, this man Hushai arrives, showing evidence of grieving His clothes are torn, he has dirt on his head, and again, David sends him back as well to try to overcome Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai is going to act as a spy for David as well. So David's wisely setting up this network, this spy network, so he has a chance of success. If you'll look in your Bible all the way down to chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15, here we see Absalom's reign. Uh, Absalom's rebellion is initially a dramatic success with no battle, no bloodshed. Absalom enters Jerusalem and takes the throne. He shocked all the pollsters. He overcame all the odds. In what seems like a flash, Absalom announces he is king and he rolls into Jerusalem. It's like the Blitzkrieg. It's just over so fast that it's the war's won before the battle begins. Well, as Absalom is entering the city in triumph, uh, David and his people are just barely escaping out the other side. Uh, From all evidence, Absalom has already won. And in these following verses, we see Absalom's reign, uh, brief as it may end up being. So verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, 
Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So Hushai claims allegiance to Absalom. I served your dad, now you're king, so I'll serve you. And Ahithophel gives his counsel, which is sleep with all your dad's concubines in public. We'll set up a tent up on the roof so you don't get sunburned. And this kind of continues this pattern of misogyny in the book of Samuel. Uh, We regularly see men who view women as objects to be used rather than persons to be respected and loved. But in that culture, the symbolism was clear. Absalom is claiming right to the throne and making absolutely clear there's going to be no alliance with David. Absalom is here to stay. And the hope is that people will recognize, okay, we we need to come around our new king. But just as Absalom lays claim to the crown with this easy rebellion, things start to take a turn. In chapter 17, we see Absalom's rebel counsel. In verse 1, Ahithophel gives good counsel. Let me gather an army right now and go pursue David. I'll capture him while he's tired and down and defeat him quickly. I'll kill David. I'll just kill David if I can. And then once he's dead, everyone's going to turn and follow you. And everyone listens to Ahithophel and loves it. It's perfect. It is good counsel. For some reason, Absalom wants a second opinion. So he calls Hushai in. And he says, Hushai, what do you think I should do? And Hushai cleverly reframes the discussion. This time, and only this time, Ahithophel is given bad counsel. Your father is going to be ready for a fight tonight. He's a warrior, so he's ready. And if we go fight and if we lose... You might have all the people, rather than joining you, they may be afraid to join you. So it's better to wait, draw a large army to yourself, you lead the army against David, and then you crush David and anyone who stands with him. Notice Ahithophel kept talking about what I will do. I will gather the army, I will go, I will defeat David. Hushai, on the other hand, kind of flatters Absalom with everything Absalom will accomplish. Absalom is going to be the leader who accomplishes all these things. And so Absalom listens to the voice of Hushai. After all, Hushai really made Absalom the hero of his plan. But at the end of verse 14, we see that it was the Lord who was behind this. The Lord had ordained to defeat Ahithophel's good counsel and bring harm on Absalom. Now, Hushai doesn't actually know which counsel is going to be followed, so he tells David both proposals, and David plans for the worst. You see that in verses 15 through 22. Um, But Absalom uh, does follow Hushai's counsel. He waits, and this turns out to be Absalom's fatal error. Uh, The last section on Absalom is Absalom's ruin. In chapter 18, the battle begins. David sets up his forces in thirds. Uh, He would go out with them, but they essentially force him to stay back, protected in the city. 
Because they know if David dies, the war is over. And so as the battle is fought, David's side wins. In verse 8, chapter 18, verse 8, it's almost as if the forest is fighting on David's behalf, swallowing up enemy soldiers, maybe an army of ants, I don't know. Well, Absalom falls to the forest as well. He rides under a tree and that beautiful long hair gets caught up in the tree branches. The donkey keeps going and Absalom is just left there hanging by his head. There's probably symbolic meaning behind what happens to Absalom. Deuteronomy 21 says, the one who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Well, David commanded his men not to kill Absalom, but Joab knows better. Uh, Joab kills Absalom, he buries his body deep in the forest, and so the rebellion is over. Now, Ahithophel's counsel would have been good. Hushai's counsel fails, which was his purpose. Uh, Absalom and his people are now defeated. In the end, Absalom's rebellion, which seemed to be going so well so fast, fails quickly. Absalom doesn't realize it, but of his own free will, he's become a pawn in God's providential plan. Absalom's rebellion fulfills God's prophetic word. Absalom's public sexual acts fulfill God's prophetic word. Absalom's violence fulfills God's prophetic word. So in the end, even Absalom's defeat fulfills God's prophetic word. No one forced Absalom to rebel. No one forced him to take bad counsel. He did all these things of his own free choice. And yet, every one of them accomplished God's purpose. God's providence prevailed. Absalom's rebellion against God resulted in Absalom's ruin. You know, countless people follow the path of Absalom. Rebellion against God and rebellion against his anointed. People without number are opposed to God and his purposes. They reject him. They rebel against his anointed, against Jesus Christ. Perhaps, here this morning, you know in your heart that you are in rebellion against God. You know that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, but you refuse to seek God. You refuse to honor God. You don't want to obey him. You want to be the ruler in your own life. You want to be your own king. Well, friend, you can rule in your life on this earth. You can rule until you die. You can rebel against God as long as he mercifully lets you live. But you cannot defy God forever. One day God will judge One day, Jesus will come and he will separate those who love him from those who have rejected him. One day, all who oppose God will end like Absalom, under a curse, cast out, separated from the goodness of God, but in this case, for eternity. And everyone who ends up like that will be without excuse because they have rebelled against their own Creator, don't be like Absalom. Don't die in your rebellion against God. Repent, turn from your sin while there is time. Beg God for mercy. 
and know that God saves everyone who comes to him in faith. If you're a Christian, you have to recognize you're not far off from Absalom. What kept us from ending up like Absalom? Is it because we were smarter, wiser, better? It was none of these things. We were headed down the exact same path as Absalom, joyfully rebelling against God, and God in his mercy pulled us back. God gave us faith. He gave us a new heart and a new direction. God gave us a desire to honor him. And our flesh sometimes still wants to go back into the rebellion to reject God's goodness and kindness to us, to turn from his good path to follow after sin. And so daily we must renew our minds in his word, refresh ourselves in God's truth, find comfort and hope in God's promises. We need other people who love us, brothers and sisters in Christ who will call us back. When, when we're headed down that path and we're not turning, we need people who will say to us, you need to turn back to Christ. And of course, we need to be faithful to challenge our brothers and sisters as well. The only thing standing between me and Absalom's rebellious path is God himself. God's mercy and loving kindness, his grace. God's promise that nothing will separate me from his love. God's assurance that he will hold me fast. Absalom was a rebel. He died in his rebellion. Second take is David. Let's look at this through the lens of King David. Uh, first, we see David's folly. If you would go back to chapter 15, there in those first several verses, David's son is plotting against his father, taking his father's place in the gate promising better justice if people would have him as judge, winning the hearts of the people. And then we have David, the wise king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, the one who his people look to. David begins today's text as a fool. He's blindsided by his son's rebellion, his son who murdered the heir. His son, who murdered the firstborn son to become next in line for the throne, has now turned against David as well. I mean, who could have ever seen that coming, right? Well, David's folly is not an example for us to follow, follow but it does accomplish some important purposes. Uh, one, it helps fulfill God's prophetic word. The sword would not leave his house. His own family would rise up against him. The sin would take place against his household. David's folly results in the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. But David's folly also highlights a more important reality. David isn't the one who can break the curse. We need someone greater than David. We need someone who is always wise. And the one greater than David who came to be the final king is the one who is wisdom incarnate. You know, David is a reminder to us that, that we can be the fool. We want to tell ourselves, I'm never the fool. That's always other people. But sometimes we're the fool. 
And we need other people to help us. We need other people to challenge us to stop walking in the path of folly. Well, in verse 13, by the time David hears what's going on, it's actually too late. The rebellion has started. Absalom is on the way to Jerusalem. And so David's folly has allowed a rebellion to begin. So what we see next is David's flights. David has to flee from Absalom. Look at verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. David and his people flee. There's a small army headed to town. And as David flees, we see pictures of faithfulness to the Lord's anointed. And then we also see some pictures of unfaithfulness. In verses 19 and following, this foreigner Ittai the Gittite is faithful to David, uh, even at great risk to himself. Uh, David even gives him the opportunity to stay and join Absalom. Stay where it's safe. You just stay there if you want. But Ittai is faithful to David. Later in verse 32, Hushai, another foreigner, we mentioned him already, he is faithful to David. And what we see in both cases is the foreigner is faithful while the Israelites are unfaithful. Now this stands in contrast to David's own son, Absalom, who's rebelling against him. David's good counselor, Ahithophel, who's rebelling against him. There's a picture and a reminder here that the true Israelite is the one who is faithful to the Lord's anointed. It is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. In verse 24 and following, I've jumped back. I think I jumped to verse 32. Now we're going back to verse 24. Uh, Abiathar and Zadok, uh, they're Levites. They're faithful as well. They know David is the Lord's anointed, so they're going to be faithful and go with him. But David actually sends them back. Look at verse 25. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the, Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me both see both it and his dwelling place. David doesn't know what God's going to do in this instance. As far as David knows, this might be the end for him. But he knows that the ark belongs in the house of God. And so he tells them to, to, to leave it there. In verse 30, David and his people ascend the Mount of Olives weeping, and David prays there. Perhaps this is when he got the inspiration for the psalm that we read earlier today. As, verse, as we get to verse 32, David is setting up this system of intelligence a plan for news to travel from Jerusalem all the way out to David and his men out in the country. Chapter 16 transitions to unfaithful people. Uh, first, we have Ziba. You may remember he was Saul's servant. Now he serves Mephibosheth. And it appears in the text at first that Ziba is David's faithful servant. He shows up with bread and wine and fruit for David and his men. 
But when David asks about Mephibosheth, Ziba claims that he believed the kingdom was going to go back to him, back to Saul's family, and so he stayed in Jerusalem. Now, that claim sounds false just on the very face of it, because nothing in this rebellion is pointing to any kind of return, return to power for Saul's family. Right? Everything we've heard in the rebellion is about Absalom becoming king. Uh, and in fact, later we're going to find out Ziba is totally lying. He, he just made this up to try to get power for himself, and he succeeds. David seems to believe Ziba. He gives all of the land that was Mephibosheth's over to Ziba. Next we meet Shimei. He curses David. He accuses David of stealing the kingdom from Saul. David's servants want to kill Shimei, but David won't let them. He basically says, what if God told him to curse me? Maybe this is what's supposed to happen. And then he says, perhaps God will repay me with good. So he's cursing me, but maybe God will repay me with good. And so David and his men go on. And the rest of chapter 16 and the first half of chapter 17 are about Absalom and his plans that we've kind of talked about already. We're going to pick up in 17.23. Ahithophel cannot accept the fact that his counsel was rejected. So he went and he put his affairs in order and killed himself. In his pride, life was only worth living if his counsel was the counsel that was accepted. You know, pride is a deadly sin. It twists our minds, it clouds our judgments. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And then we fall apart when our wisdom and our skill and our intellect are not recognized by those around us. Chapter 17, verse 27, is another reminder of God's faithfulness in and through his people. As David is fleeing, we keep seeing people provide for him and his men. And recognize, anyone who provides for David is putting their life at great risk. Because if David loses and Absalom comes behind him and finds out who helped him, he's very likely going to take them out as well. After all, that was Hushai's plan that he suggested they follow. But those who are faithful to God will be faithful to his people as well. Continuing on, the first half of chapter 18 focuses on the battle and Absalom's death. And this is where we see David's failure. This is David's failure. David may feel responsible for Absalom's actions. In some ways, uh, David failed to address the rebellion earlier when it would have been easier to, to put down. It's David's own sin that has resulted in the situation in the first place. Absalom's actions are the fulfillment of God's prophetic word against David. And so perhaps in that sense, David feels responsible, like it's his fault that Absalom is rebellion. But whatever David's re reasoning, David is failing in how he responds. His one rule of war is that Absalom not be killed. And you know, the fastest way to end this rebellion is if Absalom dies. Because if Absalom dies, the rebel leader is dead. There is no rebellion. And David's men, they recognize that on, on their side with David. They won't let David go near the front because they know Israel will aim to kill him first. And so David stays back. But David won't let his men take that same approach. What that means is David is willing for the maximum number of people to die 
in order to protect his own rebel son. And remember, all the people involved in this war are David's people. If David wins, all these people are going to be his subjects again. But David is willing to risk the lives of all of his people in order to save the life of Absalom. And it's another example of David protecting his own family at the cost of his people and at the cost of justice. Joab recognizes Absalom must die. The rebellion cannot end until Absalom is dead. And so Joab kills Absalom the first chance he gets. Now Absalom's rebellion has been defeated. David is won. But David doesn't know yet. Right? Absalom's men, or excuse me, David's men asked him to stay protected. So he's, he's like the last one to hear the news that Absalom has died. If you look at uh, chapter 18, verse 19... Uh, There's this debate about who's going to get to go and tell David the news that Absalom is dead. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, that's the priest, he, he, he wants to go, but Joab won't let him. And Joab's reasoning is not stated, uh, but perhaps he's worried that David is going to do violence to the one who tells him that his son is dead. Uh, you may remember David actually killed the last two people that told him that his rival king had been killed. So Joab sends a foreigner instead, an unnamed Cushite, to go and tell David. But Ahimaaz, for whatever reason, he really wants to go. And so he finally persuades Joab, and he outruns the Cushite and tells David first. But he only mentions the victory. He doesn't answer David about whether his son is alive or dead. And finally, the Cushite arrives, and he tells David, Absalom has died. Essentially, he says, may may all your enemies be as Absalom now is, which is dead. David hears this news, and he grieves loudly and publicly. Once again, Joab has to step in. Your servants who fought for you and would have died for you are acting as if they fought cowardly and fled. They look ashamed even though they fought and won. And the reason they're ashamed is because of you, David. You are the problem. You've shown us you care more about your rebel son than all of your other faithful servants. And Joab essentially says, everyone's going to abandon you if you don't change your attitude. Well, David listens to the voice of Joab. He recognizes that he is right. And so David goes to the gate, that's sort of the place of government action And he and the people are one again. Well, David has a future. David's won the battle. He doesn't die. He doesn't lose his kingdom. There's still this promise, this hopeful promise that David's greater son will reign after him. So a future remains for David and his line. And the question for us is, where is God in the midst of all this? Because we fail to understand this passage if we don't see the hidden hand of providence. For each major event, we could see how it followed the free choice of individuals. They chose according to their own wills. And yet, each one accomplished God's purpose. Key example, that prophecy of God from 2 Samuel 12 the sword and sexual sin against David's house by his own house, 
These things have been foretold years before, back when David sinned with Bathsheba. And Absalom fulfilled each one of these prophecies in his rebellion. Now, Absalom is morally responsible for his own sin. He chose to do these things. He will pay the price for them. And yet, the Lord had prophesied beforehand that this would happen because of David's sin. And all of God's prophecy is fulfilled in detail. And this is just one example in Scripture of God's prophecy being fulfilled, of countless fulfilled prophecies in God's Word. Have you ever considered how hard it is to make a prophecy? Our political pollsters can't even get elections right with advanced data analytics. And yet God can foretell things days, weeks, years, centuries beforehand, and they certainly take place. God's made countless promises, countless prophecies that have been fulfilled. Promises that we can see and know they've been fulfilled. These things are evidences of God's control. We also see God's protection in the events of today's text. David was as safe fleeing from Absalom as he was back when he was sitting on his throne. He felt in danger, and certainly from a human perspective, he was in danger. But he was absolutely safe in God's hands. As long as God wanted David to live, David would surely live. You know, David hoped that Hushai would serve him better by staying with Absalom. David didn't know that for sure. It was just his reasoned judgment. But in the key moment, when Absalom received good counsel from a good counselor, he instead chose to listen to Hushai's counsel. Absalom chose that absolutely of his own free will. And yet, what did the text tell us back in chapter 17, verse 14? Absalom chose this because the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The Lord harmed Absalom and protected David based on Absalom's free choice. David was absolutely safe because the Lord still had other purposes for him on earth. And all of this, just thinking big picture, all of this is the providence of God. The providence of God is the reality that God is at work in the world, carrying out his own purposes. That the Lord has declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. He has said his counsel will stand and he will accomplish all his purpose. The Lord can make predictive prophecies because his providence rules Overall, his prophecies will come true because he has determined what will take place. And for us as God's people, the providence of God assures us that all things come to us by God's fatherly hand. Our life is not a result of random chance, but sovereign purpose. Our life is not a scattershot of disconnected events, but a sequence of divine actions. And because of God's providence, God's people do not need to fear. 
We do not need to fear the results of Tuesday's election. We do not need to fear what will happen in our life. We do not need to fear whether we will be able to provide for our family. We do not need to fear the day of our death. Christian, God is working in your life for your good. Nothing can happen in your life that will thwart God's purpose. Nothing can happen in your life that will change God's purpose. God will act for your good. God will act to bring good to you. God will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Final thought on the providence of God. In God's providence, David's failure in today's text shows us that we need a greater king. David is a representative for his people. David's sin and rebellion from a few chapters ago resulted in judgment, not just for himself, but for all of his people. The sword, the abuse, the destruction. Because David is their representative, his sin resulted in their punishment. David's failure points us to a better representative for God's people. Jesus' righteousness and obedience resulted in forgiveness for his people. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So David's people received the curse that he incurred for his sin. We receive the blessing that Jesus incurred for his righteousness. David and his people bore the consequences of his sin. Jesus had no sin. And because he is our representative, Jesus bore the consequences of our sin, and he gives us his righteousness for everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus. At this point in the book of Samuel, all God's people could see was David and his failure. But God, behind the scenes, is working towards a greater future through David's greater son. We're like David's son, Absalom. Rebellion is in our blood. But God takes rebels like us and makes us friends and family through David's great son. And so I challenge you, if you're still a rebel... End your rebellion rebellion today. Submit to Jesus Christ, the true and final King. Let's pray to him. Jesus, we praise you that you were worthy, that you lived a perfect life of righteousness and holiness, that you never sinned, You were qualified to be our substitute, to pay the price for sin that we should have paid, and to give us the righteousness that belongs to you. We thank you for the picture in our text of David, a great king but not great enough. We thank you for the picture of Absalom and rebellion, and the reminder that apart from your grace, We're rebels just the same. 
Father, we ask that you would be at work in us. Take away our rebellious hearts. Take away the parts of our flesh that still cling to rebellion. Help us to cling to the cross of Christ. May Jesus be worshiped. It's in his name we pray. Amen.